0: Hope y'all had a good week. Yeah, well, it wasn't too bad. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to the uh, first book of Samuel. First book of Samuel. We're going to continue our walk through the book of First and Second Samuel, which is... So far, it's just been... Uh, a great journey. Uh, the reflections off from just the life of Hannah have really been outstanding. and It's amazing to see God's sovereign work through the lives of his people, and that we can glean from this and um, apply it to our own lives. I'll be reading one verse today, and that'll be 1 Samuel one we We're the 19th verse of the first chapter, 1 Samuel Um, chapter 1 verse 19 which reads the next morning Elkanah and Hannah got up early to bow and worship before the Lord and then returned home to Ramah and Elkanah had relations with his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. Let's pray. Father we come before your throne this morning Lord we're thankful for who you are Lord, we come for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to worship your holy name. Lord, be glorified today in in removing any obstacles or anything that would uh, keep us from from hearing what it is that you'd have to speak to us and communicate to us this morning. Lord, give us ears to hear. Lord, grant us the ability to absorb the word of God. Help us today, Lord. To to apply the word of God in the world, in our homes, in our lives, in our workplaces, Lord. Let us be that bright and burning light in such a dark age. Lord, we just commit this time into your hands. We're thankful for what you're doing. Lord, we want to remember those who are in the Ukraine, Lord those who are suffering today, those who are without food, uh, whose families may be living in terror, may be homeless. Lord, we want to remember them in our prayers. Lord, we ask God that you would move mightily in the midst of the people there, Lord. Lord, you are a rescuing God. You're an ever-present help in time of trouble, not just for us here in America, but those around the world. You created the entire cosmos, Lord. You created the world. The inhabitants of the world, as the Bible says in the book of Psalms, that you own all the inhabitants of the world. They are yours, Lord. Be glorified in helping these people, Lord. They need our prayers. We exalt you today over the lives of the people in Ukraine. Bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel 119, I would like to read it again. Uh, the next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to bow and worship before the Lord and then return home to Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. I'd like to say uh, to you this morning that the Lord never forgets. The Lord never forgets. He always remembers. As Christ himself tells us in the sacrament, do this in remembrance of me, knowing that we mere mortals are prone to wander, prone to forget God. The Lord doesn't need to be constantly reminded of anything because he always remembers and he always remembers you. God never forgets. God never forgets. Genesis 8, verse 1, it said that God remembered Noah. In Genesis 19, 29, it said God remembered Abraham. In Genesis 21, 1, it says the Lord remembered Sarah. In Genesis 30, God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. Genesis 39, God remembered Joseph. As the Bible says that he was put into prison, but the Lord remembered Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. God remembered Gideon. Judges 6.12, it says that the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. God remembered Daniel. Daniel cried out to God, You have remembered me, O God, said Daniel. You have not forsaken those who love you. Psalm 132 David cried out, Lord, remember David in all of his afflictions. The Lord remembered Job and, and restored all that he had lost and much more. God remembers his covenant. When the Hebrew slaves cried out to the Lord in Egypt, God heard their groanings and he remembered his covenant. Our Lord remembers the cries of the lost, the thief on the cross. In Luke 23, And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee this day, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. And our Lord remembers you. Dear brothers and sisters, He has not, wherever you are this morning, wherever you've been, whatever you're going through, He has not forgotten you. I can't think of anything more defeating than, despairing, depressing, agonizing, and painful than the feeling that you have been forgotten by God. Have you ever been there before? You ever been in, in, in that area of your life, you just be honest and say, yeah, I've been there. I have. I've been in those points and areas in my life where I've felt that God had a- absolutely forgotten me to the point where I've actually said, God, have you forgotten me? But I know, according to his word, that God always remembers. God never forgets. And as we have read so far in this barrenness of Hannah, this was an affliction that was cut very deep to the heart of Hannah and her identity. But as the Bible says, it was ordained of God. God shut her womb, and it would be God that would ultimately open her womb. But this does not exclude her pain, her torment, her rejection, and the absolute abandonment she felt by her own people. And at times, as we know, probably even God. But we know Hannah's life is a testimony, as Paul would say, I have fought the good fight. When I think of the story of Hannah. I think of uh, the Song of Solomon in verse 8-5 where it says, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? This is the idea that I get. Coming out of the wilderness, coming out of those desert places, coming out of those painful moments, those painful moments of rejection, abandonment, or whatever it is. We don't walk away from the Lord. We walk with the Lord as she came out of that wilderness. Hannah's life, though, it seems to all that she had been forgotten by God. In practice, her life would show that she was always remembered by God. At least she gives a great testimony on how a believer should conduct themselves under what seems a forgotten life. See, it's those moments where Uh, we're in those deferred moments. A hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when it comes, it's a tree of life. It's in those deferred moments, you see. It's in those moments where we actually feel like we've been forgotten by God is when we're to shine the most. Because everybody else may look at your life and look at your predicament, look at the consequence of your life and say this man or woman has been absolutely rejected and abandoned by God. But they could be completely wrong. They're definitely wrong about Hannah, for sure. So when the Bible says that God forgets, it says that you know God forgets, does this mean that he has to be reminded? Because we know actually the Bible never says that God forgets, but then why does he need to be reminded? God remembered, God remembered, God remembered. Does this actually mean that he forgot, that he forgets? Well, when the Bible says that God remembered something, it is not implying forgetfulness. Because we know that God always remembers. It is part of his nature. The statement that God remembered places an emphasis on his faithfulness and on his everlasting care. Expressions expressions such as God remembered and even other expressions as God's arm is strong are examples of what we would call anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism is a figure of speech in which certain traits of finite humanity are ascribed to the infinite God. Such figures are found often in the Bible, and they help us understand God's work from a human perspective. When God remembers sin, he punishes it. When God remembers his people, he blesses them. Passages in which God remembers are always followed by proofs that God never forgets. In Genesis twenty-one, one it says, "And Yahweh basically took note of Sarah's predicament when she was barren." And the whole Hebrew, the original language, it really it is the word. It's called "pachad," which is what it's called, and it's trans it's translated even in the life of Hannah when it says that God remembered. It actually means that. Um, the word Picad actually means call to mind or it means uh, to remember or to visit. It's synonymous with the verb zakar, which means to mark, as to be recognized. That is to remember. And some even translate it as avenge or to deliver or to vindicate. This is the idea that God didn't forget Hannah. God didn't forget Rachel. You know, God didn't forget them. God took note of them. And soon would avenge them. He would vindicate them. He would bring about his work for his own glory. This whole idea of their barrenness wasn't absent from the mind of God. The Bible said that God had closed her womb. God had done this himself. But God had noted this was going to take place and would soon vindicate her. And both of these are used, both of these words are actually used in reference to conception. And the Lord remembered her. The Lord took note of her. As a matter of fact, it is those whose lives shine the brightest in that temporary waiting period, as many know, to be the furnace of affliction. And I would like to show this in the life of Hannah, four ways in which God never forgets displayed in the life of Hannah. Look at four ways that God never forgets in the life of Hannah, displayed in her life. Because when we read that, hey, you know, God remembered, it assumes that he forgets. But it's a way that God is communicating through his word to us this reality that he is taking note of Hannah's life. And we can see this displayed in her life that she wasn't forgotten at all. Even though God says he had remembered her, her life displays these realities that she was never forgotten. The first one is her early worship. The scriptures say in verse 119, the next morning Elkanah and Hannah got up early to bow and worship before the Lord. Early worship. There's something about the early morning that brings a certain element, or shall I say anointing, that can't be gotten any other way. There's something about early morning devotion, early morning times meeting with God. There's something about the early morning hours that that you just can't get any other way in our ability to communicate with God in prayer. I know just from personal experience is that my greatest, most intimate times with the Lord have always been those moments early in the morning. And we can see this in Scripture. Proverbs 8, verse 17 says, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. We see this throughout Scripture. Abraham arose early in the morning. Jacob rose early in the morning. Samuel rose early in the morning. David arose early in the morning. He says, "Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. O oh God, you are my God; early will I seek you." The disciples rose early in the morning. The Bible says they entered the temple. They entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Jesus himself rose early. In the morning, Mark 1:35, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up. Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. How many of you know that one of the most painful things to do sometimes is to get out of bed? Right? To get up early and seek the Lord. Right. One of the hardest things you can do is just put those two feet on the floor in the early morning hours, grab your Bible, get on your knees, and seek the living God. not that the hardest thing to do sometimes? The flesh rages against it, doesn't it? But have you ever found that when you've done it, something changes your day? Changes the way that you view the day the way that you view people, your response to people, the way you conduct your lives. Now, I'm not saying you're committing a cardinal sin because you don't get up early in the morning and pray. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is there's enough evidence in Scripture that points to the blessing of getting up early to do anything. It's it's a sacrificial step out of your bed in the early morning hours. It is by far one of the most painful things to do. Sleep can be an idol to many of us. If we're not careful, we can become in bondage to it. And there is a prize to those who can get up. It's even proven by the world when it talks to, you know, um, as far as those who get more done. It says most successful people report that they're up at 5 a.m. or even earlier. Earlier risers tend to be more productive for a variety of reasons including having more time to focus on important tasks while the rest of the world is asleep. This also translates at least even for me to fewer interruptions. We get up. I have 7 children. If I get up early in the morning, you can you can have those moments of pure quietness alone without any interruptions. The brain tends to be most alert in the morning. If you're able to focus without interruptions early in the day, what happens? You get more done. You get more accomplished. You utilize your time better. You know all time belongs to God as all money belongs to God. And we'll be called into account on how we've spent our time. We want to utilize our time best for the glory of God. And if we're up early in the morning, we get more accomplished. You tend to make better decisions and think more clearly in the morning than in the afternoon and evening. Setting your goals first thing will help you to achieve them. And if you can manage to get out of bed early, you'll find that you have more energy throughout the day. It seems counterintuitive, but there are countless testimonials. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Proverbs twenty thirteen says, Do not love sleep or you'll become poor. Proverbs 6, 9 says, says, How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Proverbs 6.10 says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. This is where extremely important, where we see in Hannah's life, at least, she was an early riser. She was up early. And I think, you know, A lot of times, if you guys would be honest, is that there's got to be something that drives us to do the things that are painful. Something that drives our life that would allow us to be able to spear through a lot of the pressures of the day. There's got to be something there that so drives us that would cause us to get up in the morning with, with, with a sense of excitement and awe to meet with the creator of the universe. That you're coming to God through Christ for holy worship. You're bowing down before your Creator. You're bowing down before your Savior. And you're worshiping God. I mean, this alone should be the catalyst that drives us to our knees, drives us out of bed in the morning. This excitement that we want to meet God. But I'll tell you something on the latter end. On the other end, the flip side is that if you think that you are forgotten by God, if you think that you don't matter to God, that there is no value to you, towards God, you're not going to get out of that. And most everything that you do in life, if you think it's valueless and meaningless, you step into what we would call nihilism, the sense of meaninglessness to everything that we do in life. And obviously that we know that our lives are meaningful. But there must be a drive for us to, to do those things That we don't like to do. It's what drives a person to stay in a local church. When they don't agree with everybody. It's what drives somebody to reconcile. And to forgive a person who has sinned against them. It's a person who will wait patiently on the Lord. In those great times where it seems like nothing is happening. Where you get up every morning. and can continue on what God has called you to do. And you just don't give up. What is that driving you to continue in the face of odds and and betrayal and great disappointment? You just keep pressing on. It is God Himself that keeps you pressing on. When God said to to Abraham, He says, Fear not, Abraham, for I am thy great reward. It It was God who was Abraham's reward. I am your inheritance. Yeah, you've got the land, you've got the prizes, you've got the milk and honey, you've got all these things, but in reality, at the end of the day, you get God. And I've repeated this before, but it's worth repeating again. Uh, John Piper once said, if you come to God for any other reason than God Himself, you come in vain. God is our reward. You get God. When you get up in the morning, you're driven before Almighty God as one of his. Children. And this is the key foundation that'll drive you through everything in life. And it'll keep you from getting burned out. You'll make it there, as Paul said, I've run the race. I've completed the race. Go on to your prize. Which brings us to the second point praying together. Praying with your spouse. If you have a spouse. The Bible says that Elkanah and Hannah got up early, but they didn't just get up early. Notice here, they bowed in worship before the Lord. It says they bowed in worship before the Lord. They came to God together early in the early hours of the morning. Obviously, you know, they they went to the temple. We know that they had a specific assignment that they did. But the reality is the principle is still the same. They got up early in the morning and they got up and they bowed before the Lord together. Which can be another very painful thing to do. is to pray together. My wife can tell you that. The struggles it is, honestly, to get up in the morning, but the second struggle is to pray together with your spouse, to come together and bow down together before the Lord. How important is this? Well, I think it's beautifully illustrated in the life of Hannah and the story of Hannah. And Hannah, as she became victorious. God answered her prayer. He answer her prayer based on what she did, as if she was just getting goodies for being a good girl. But her life was provoked, and it was induced by the Spirit of God. Her love for God, her affection for God, her affinity for God, her love for God drove her to do these things. To get up early in the morning, to seek the living God before daybreak, to do it with her husband, to come together as two before Almighty God. They did it together. See, the miracle that God was going to perform through Hannah took both Alkanah and Hannah together, not just in intimacy, okay? Not just in, as we could say, sexual relations, but it was in the pure worship before God together. They worshiped together before they became intimate together. Notice that. Notice where the intimacy is there. Notice that they're getting up, and they're going, and they're worshiping together before Almighty God, before they even come together to conceive. God is teaching us and showing us a very important principle here in the life of His saints. We can reflect on this and look at this and apply this to our own lives. But it will be hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. Especially as men, we want to do everything alone. We want to do everything on our own. You know, I mean, I can testify to that. It's difficult for me as a as a as a Christian not only just to get up at daybreak, but also to say, Hey, to your to your spouse, let's seek the living God together, let's pray together. Because that's gonna form the intimacy that's gonna produce the promise in Hannah's life. Paul said in Ephesians, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church, talking about this great mystery of marriage, how it reflects the gospel. It reflects the beauties of the gospel. And it is the reflection of Christ in the way that we come together and we worship together before Christ. Which brings us to the third point, the place of promise, the place of, It says, The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to bow and worship before the Lord and then returned home to Ramah. What's so significant about this, about, about going back to Ramah? I mean, many of you probably know, but Ramah has a lot of significance because it has its roots where? In the life of Rachel. Rachel's life, Rachel's burial ground, the pillar by by which she was married. This would be the same area or location where Rachel herself was buried. And think about the remembrance factor of this whole incident and what that would even mean to Hannah. Coming back to this point of remembrance, knowing the life of Rachel Actually, we know that Rachel was the only woman in the Bible that died, apparently, was the first person, I'm sorry, was the first person, woman to die in childbirth. But we know how God had opened her womb as well. And this has been very significant for Hannah as well. Well, for starters, let's talk about this for a minute. Rachel's tomb was thought to lie in Ramah, according to 1 Samuel 10.2. Rachel's name is significant for a couple of reasons. Rachel was the beloved wife of Jacob, and is considered by the Jews to be the primary mother or founder of the nation of Israel. It says in Genesis 35, 19 and 20, So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar on her grave that marks Rachel's tomb to this day. A Rather interesting but often overlooked and many times misunderstood, Prophecy involving Rachel and Ramah is linked to the birth of Christ. The birth of Christ. But we cannot overlook the significance that Rachel had upon Hannah. They are very similar. Let's look at a few similarities. The similarity between their situations is almost uncanny. They were both married. Both of their marriages were polygamous. They were both the favorite wife of their respective husbands. Both of their husbands' um, other wife had kids. They didn't. Both desperately wanted children. Eventually both had a son. As similar as their stories are, the contrast between the two women are even more stark. The place where Elkanah and Hannah had returned was the place and pillar of Rachel's tomb, which represents the past, the present, and future for God's children. I mean, the whole story of Hannah is about, you know, the Lord in her barrenness promising her a son, which ultimately she dedicates to the Lord. What a beautiful illustration of the love of God. And also how God gives us testimonies to spur us on to the end. And those of you today that are, that are really struggling with certain difficulties in your life, you know, God has put people in your life. You know, it may not be a, necessarily a, a person that's even living. It could be books that you read. It could be the story of another person who kept the faith who kept moving on, who kept believing. And God moved miraculously and and, and did something powerfully, which brings encouragement to you today. This story of Hannah should bring encouragement to you this morning. You should be able to read this story and, and, and look at this and say, you know, God hasn't forgotten. I haven't been just lost in the crowd. You know, the interesting thing about being a Christian, this is the most powerful point if you just want to put this into your mind, because you look around the world and you see all the things that are going on, right? You look in different countries, there's just millions and millions and millions of people everywhere. And you think of, you know, at least I think like this. You know, it's like I'm one little tiny person in the corner of Watauga in Texas somewhere in the world, you know, living my little life, you know. And if, if you look at it in light of the, the just the amount of people that exist in this world, it can almost be depressing. Because it's like here I'm this little insignificant person. Do I really matter? Is my life really significant? And the answer is yes. Because you have to look at it through the eyes of Christ, through the eyes of our creator. Because it is God who brought you into existence. It's God who brought you into this place, into this world, doing what you're doing. You are God's idea. You fit into his framework. And if that is your worldview, a lot of the other things, like trying to get noticed on social media, just a consistent, obsessive um, you know, search for an identity, just kind of disintegrate. Because you got to realize you didn't get here by your own power. You came here by the power of another. You came here by the mind of God. God brought you to the place where you are today. You're his idea. You could have never gotten here without God. You're here today worshiping Christ because God had remembered you. He took note of you. You're the elect of God. You have to look at it that way and say, God has put me here for his glory and God cares about me. Every jot and tittle, everything about you, God cares about. He cares about everything. We have to understand that. This is how we live a fruitful life. Don't get caught up with everything that's going on. And I mean, it's great to pray for the things that are going on in the world, but don't spend your life looking at your life as being insignificant because this is where God has you and it doesn't feel like you're getting noticed. God notices all things. He has placed you there for his glory and what you're doing is the most important thing you could ever do. We want to look at the past. In Jeremiah thirty one, fifteen says, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation in bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. This is what is the you know, what is the significance of this pillar of Rachel? Well in Jeremiah thirty one, Rachel's portrayed as crying not only for her literal descendants, the Benjamites, but also as the mother of Israel for all those collected in Ramah. She laments for those taken captive out of their homeland as if they are not. Because the overwhelming majority will die in a foreign land. They will never return home as the captivity is foretold to the last 70 years. According to Jeremiah, Rachel cries out from her grave as the Israelites are driven into exile. In her lifetime, she never never settled into the promised land of Canaan, never mothered her children to adulthood, dying prematurely in childhood by the roadside. Then we look at the present in, in Hannah's day. Hannah returned home to Rachel's pillar, remembering her story, remembering the past that would give her courage for the present. And then the future, Herod the Great, unable to discover Christ's exact location, in Matthew 2, uh, chapter, or verses 8 and 12 and 16, he sent troops to the city to murder all males two years older or younger. According to Matthew, this this mass execution in 5 B.C. fulfilled the words of Jeremiah the prophet, which involved Rachel. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are not. Hannah's life for ages to come would combat the culture of death. This whole idea of Hannah's life is obviously, you know, we know that Samuel, it's the inception of Samuel and his ministry and all the things that God had had did through Samuel. And now eventually, ultimately, it points to Christ. But the reality here is that when you look at the life of Hannah, you see uh, that this is a really a confrontation of the culture of death and the innocent killing of babies. Think about that. It's devastating to me that there are so many women out there and families out there who would love to adopt a child. I mean, you think about the agonizing effects of a woman who was barren would just do anything to have a baby of her own. And how many families out there that I even know personally would love to have a baby? And then we just had people marching into these death mills, killing their kids, killing these babies. It's insane it's, it's absolutely utterly insane There's a headline in a newspaper From Life Today It reads this Nurse says she loves delivering babies one day Killing them in abortion the next Think about this Just devastating insanity This disturbing uh, obsession With, with bloodlust in our culture It's out of control It's out of control the attack against the big bad baby. The enemy hates babies, brothers and sisters. Well, how do we act upon this as the people of God? How do we respond to this? How do we respond? Does it mean we've got to go out to the abortion mill with our signs? No, you can. That's fine. You know, you want to go confront that? that? You want to go right to the guillotine itself and confront it? Absolutely. Go for it. I support you. But also, one of the greatest ways that we can just live out a confrontational way against the, the, the murdering of the unborn is to have babies. Have children. Now, I'm not a cult saying that you have to have children to be blessed. I'm saying that we, 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 we're for life. We're for life. Adopt. You know, and if not, then then support a child, adopt a child somewhere else, adopt them through giving or whatever. Be pro-child, pro-Christ is pro-life in that sense, which is exactly what Hannah and Elkanah did. In which we finish off here uh, in this last point four, they acted on the promise. They acted on it. They acted on it. First Samuel 119, the next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to bow and worship before the Lord and then returned home to Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. I mean, a child just wasn't going to drop out of the sky. There had to be some action that took place in which it did. And this is way, this is where they stepped in and they believed God. And God heard Hannah, remembered her, and gave her children See, they acted on the promise. Nothing worse than when somebody, all they want to do is pray, but they never want to act. They pray, but they don't want to apply. They want to, you know, we want to, you know, be in supplication, but no application. They want to reach up, but never reach out. In Exodus 14, 15, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Quit praying and get the people moving. Forward, March. It's this tragic consequence of not moving, applying action to what God's called you to do. To step in and do what the Lord has called you to do, to act on the promise. Even in your own lives, it's going to take more than just you praying about it all the time. As a matter of fact, I get tired of people saying that sometimes. I'll pray about it, I'll pray about it, I'll pray about it, I'll pray about it. Well, we need to act, act about it. I'll just pray for the lost. I'll pray for the lost. But you never reach out to the lost. We reach our hands up all day long. because We all love to reach our hands up. But very few will reach their hands out. It's important that, that we learn to act instead of just pray about things. Proverbs 13.15 says, Good understanding wins favor. But the way of the unfaithful is hard, like barren, dry soil. In other words that when we are when we are unfruitful, purposely unfruitful or we decide that we just don't want to do what the Lord has called us to do and we're truly born again but we work against that, where the Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard that's talking about a believer it's talking about someone who's been converted and who's not obeying God who's walking against the things of God, walking in willful rebellion against their Father. It's easy for a sinner to sin as easy as it is for a dog to bark. They do it naturally. It's easy for them. It's not hard for a sinner to sin. But it's hard for a believer, a true believer, to go against their conscience, to live that way continually. It's nearly impossible. Very difficult, very hard to do. Think of Jonah and the life that he lived. There's many circumstances. I mean, I'm sure we could think of many times in our own lives where we ourselves had, you know, we knew the Lord was calling us to do something, or even there's certain patterns in your life that you know are sinful and they're repetitive, but you're unwilling to make those changes. You're unwilling to humble yourself, to admit, to look at these things, and to repent and change your ways. It's difficult. It's difficult. It's difficult for many reasons. It's difficult because it's not what God's called you to do, number one. Number two, you're sinning against your own conscience, which is almost unbearable. Because the Bible says that a clean conscience is a continual feast. When you have a clean conscience, it is like a continual feast. You sleep better. Everything functions better. Your health is better. Everything is better. But I would like to remind you in closing, the Bible says that, you know, even though the Lord never forgets us, it does not say that God did not choose to forget certain things in our life, and that would be sin. God had chose to forget our sin so far from the east to the west. And he said this morning, shown in Bible study. Hebrews 8.12 says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will re- I will remember their sins no more. There's one thing that we don't want God to remember is our nasty, vile sins against him. Obviously, he knows about them, but this doesn't mean he just forgets them. But you've been justified in Christ. His view towards your sin has changed. Psalms 103, 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us. And Micah 7 says, Verse 19, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. It's beautiful. So let us be reminded this morning, just for those of you today who are struggling and uh, I don't know what you're going through. um, I really don't. And this isn't a religious pep talk. It really is just, you know, letting you know that God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you, okay? He hasn't. He's not forgotten you. He's remembered you. He's taken note of you, okay? However that looks, whatever that type of trial you're going through, whatever it is, it's really for our sanctification. It's for our own good and for his glory. So you want to press on for the glories of Christ, no matter how God chooses to use us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Hannah. We thank you for what we're learning uh, through the word of God. Lord, we're thankful for your patience. We're thankful, Lord, that you have not forgotten your children. But Lord, you have taken note of us. And our sins have been vindicated on the cross of Christ. Lord, that we can freely come to the throne of grace. We don't have to cower. We don't have to shrink back. But the Bible says we can come boldly to the throne of grace because of the blood of Christ. Lord, just grant us a fresh infilling of your spirit today. Give us the mind of Christ. Help us to utilize our time. Not be time wasters, Lord. Help us to get up in the morning and seek the face of God. Help us, Lord God, to to work along with our spouses together in what God has called us to do. For, Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy. And let us be those who pursue life in every facet. Lord, be blessed with this service today. In Jesus' name, amen.